Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Vitamin D, one of the most important tests you can have to make sure that you're going to be healthy. But what are two others that are nearly as important? that everyone needs to get if you're interested in avoiding chronic disease. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Jerry Koenig, who is going to enlighten us about what these two other tests are, how they are so beneficial to your health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Dr. Mercola, good to be here. So uh, the, uh, I guess we, could, we should probably start with a short summary and I'll, I'll kind of lead that off and then you can follow up and, and add to that. But uh, one of the most common nutritional supplements that's used is iron. It's in most multivitamins and many people use it because they think they're going to get energy. And iron, of course, does serve that role. It is essential to the core of hemoglobin and helps bind oxygen and deliver it to the tissues. But when, when you, that's when you have enough, and there's certainly people in our population who don't have enough, and that would typically be menstruating women, especially if they have heavy periods, and children. So this, this population may need iron supplementation, there's no question, but the vast majority of us, and I would guess probably over 75% of the people watching this would include all adult men um, and postmenopausal women just likely don't need it. In fact, they should be on an aggressive program to lower their iron. And we're going to talk about that because if you don't, iron will catalyze a reaction within the inner mitochondrial membrane, which uh, where it reacts with super uh, hydrogen peroxide actually, and uh, it forms hydroxyl free radicals, which uh, really uh, decimate mitochondrial DNA, protein, and cell membranes, which causes mitochondrial dysfunction and leads to the core of almost all chronic degenerative diseases. So this is a very serious issue. Fortunately, it's something that can be relatively easily addressed. And that's what we're going to discuss further. So perhaps you can elaborate on my opening comments. Well, that's true, Dr. McCullough. It's, um, I've been involved with this for about 15 years now. In the last 10, I've, it's been a learning experience. Very recently, though, we've been able to track another element, gamma glutamyl transferase, GGT, as being very interactive with iron. If uh, serum ferritin, which is a measure of stored iron, is high and GGT is high, it's like a double punch. Mm -hmm. Then you have a combination of free iron, highly toxic, and iron stores to keep that toxicity rolling. So the um, epidemiologically, people have a combination of high stored so, iron. So let's hold on for a moment because GGT, mm -hmm. when I was first practicing, was an enzyme that was typically done in a chemistry, an automated chemistry profile. Now it's not. For some reason, no. they took it out of the panel, and I don't know why. And they did that maybe 10, 20 years ago. But so you have to order it special, but it's a liver enzyme. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you can enlighten us as to how this specific liver enzyme is correlated with iron toxicity. Well, 
and let's take a look at when they changed the definition of this enzyme. And now they they uh, they define it other than what it really works as. Recently, it was proved by the life insurance industry to be the most the single measure that's most predictive of early mortality, pretty much wow. across everything that. Uh, and the review that uh, I put together with Stephanie Seneff, it's, we highlight the interaction with the biggest life insurance tester in the country. It's a subsidiary of a large blood testing company. And they regularly were testing GGT as an indication of potential heavy drinking. Mm -hmm. And, and that, uh, that, that's a really strong marker for alcoholics, no question. Yes, and I remember yes. my residency, I, I worked in an inner city hospital, did my training there, and there was a large population of chronic alcohol abusers. And that was a, a, the, the routine test that would monitor that, along with PT to check their liver function. And that's a good thing. In 2011, I pointed that out to the, uh, I was looking to do a joint venture with the particular uh, blood testing lab and uh, their chief MD went to their numbers and they figured out looking back at their numbers that although they took it for alcoholism that it was standalone the single measurement that uh, predicted early mortality pretty much against all measures and uh, and other epidemiological studies, it's uh, linked to every, pretty much every cause of death because it provides those free radicals and hydroxyl radical. Well, let's start it's there. It's still confusing to me, and I don't understand why there's such a strong correlation as opposed to some of the other liver enzymes. But is this correlation uh, also noted as one tends to age? So the older you get, obviously, the higher your risk for, for most all chronic degenerative diseases occurs. That's just the nature of being alive. So would this tend to increase as you get older? Well, it, it, it is doing that now, but when it was originally studied for yeah. mortality, the risks relatively were greatest in an Austrian study in people under 30. Now, not too many people die of natural causes under 30, but it happened to be that way. And people over 70 were at less risk relatively. That's all changed. And I, I believe that's mostly people born after World War II now are all at risk because of the environmental toxicants we faced basically using our body's ability to um, detox naturally, okay. reducing glutathione levels, basically a reduction in glutathione levels, mm -hmm. body's most important uh, antioxidant. It's indicated by an increase in gamma glutamyl transferase, GGT. It's almost a seesaw. Really? So as your glutathione levels improve, mm -hmm. your GGT levels will decrease. Decrease, well, yes. Now, this is a test just so that we can out, I still want to dive deeper into this because it's such an important component. You've got a lot of other studies that you publish that go into some other details, especially in Africa. So uh, as a what, what is the optimum and what is the average now? So it, to be ideally healthy, well, it, you know, if you could pinpoint, because like like most numbers that are lab tests, uh, there's an optimum range. You don't want to be too high. Yes. You don't want to be too low. So what do you think the, the optimum is? Well, we haven't seen uh, trouble. It theoretically could be if you can't produce or synthesize gamma glutamyl transferase, 
you have a problem. Uh -huh. We know that through lab rats and so forth. Sure. But low levels don't seem to be a problem. Anything under 10 for a female seems to be fine. Okay. Uh, we don't we don't see measurements any longer under 10 for men. Typically, uh, low would be under 20. Uh -huh. But uh, the midpoint for most men in the U.S. is now about 25. Anything above that typically portends some kind of a chronic disease. Anything can happen. And in part, it's depending on body weight, strangely enough. The uh, most recent indications are that people who are too thin, uh, whatever their level of GGT is, it could be harmful to them if it's relatively high. For instance, uh, a thin man, a woman with a GGT, in a woman's case, of if it's premenopausal woman, anything in the range of uh, the second quartile, which is going to be generally 14 to 18 today, hmm. uh, can be dangerous if she's expecting to have children and is a very low BMI. You know, it seems that uh, we're missing one level of, of precision here because mm -hmm. the uh, ranges are really single digits bet between optimum and pathologic which is totally different than almost any of the other lab tests we use, like blood glucose or serum ferritin or cholesterol. You know, usually you're looking at 20, 30, 50 ranges between, good, between healthy and disease. But here we're looking at as little as single digits. So for, if, for chronic if we, disease, yes. Yeah, and if we had a, do, is there any effort to get another level of precision? So, like, we could have fourteen point three, which would essentially give us three levels of precision, or is that the, no, the lab no. assay not doing that? The, the labs, it's, it's hard to find labs to to do it. Again, it's a special order test in most labs, although it's a very inexpensive test as a single order. Hmm. It's one of the least expensive tests there is. Yeah, um, and I actually had my test done after our last conversation uh, and then, and uh, was 17. So that's in the, that's in the healthy range. And it's, mm -hmm. it's surprising because I also have struggled most of my life with high iron levels as a result of having thalassemia, which is essentially presents a hemochromatosis-like condition because I recycle my blood cells so frequently. Uh, so by paying attention to that, it's, you can abort some of these sort of genetic predispositions towards harm and damage if you understand it. So I would recommend, I mean, even everyone now, just go and get your blood level tested for GGT. And you're going to be even more motivated to do this. We continue this conversation, but put it on your to-do list. It's inexpensive test. You do need a doctor's order for it. Or actually, there are some companies that I think uh, offer that without. But it's, a, well, it's under $50. I think oh, even yeah. Like it's, it's, um, in our site, it's, tw I think, $28, $29. Right. So you have it on your site for $28. And this is not a pitch to get lots of people no. to go to your site. I mean, have they, they can I get mean, their doctor to order it for yes, them. That's the best I mean, thing. The intention here is to motivate and catalyze action so, so that you can understand what your number is so that you can uh, understand that you're at risk for chronic disease if it's elevated. And, and you know, you're going to have to use the normals we're talking about or the optimums levels, not the ones that are going to come back on the lab because they're using outdated ranges. And let's talk about those ranges now that they would get back if they went mm -hmm. to their, got a lab from Quest if their doctor ordered it for them. It's covered by their insurance. Well, I, I like to look at the midpoints because these are tests like, there's nothing below zero, certainly, and yeah. you can get very high values out. <laughs> so they're right, skewed to the right. 
but uh, medians are a good point. If you're below the median, you're relatively safe. And the male medians in the U.S. today are uh, 25. They're higher for African Americans, quite a bit higher in some cases. Um, 25 for men, where they were 16, 30 years ago, 1980, was that... Uh, 35 years ago, but they roughly doubled almost since that time. Females have doubled. Females have gone from a medium of nine in 1980, medium age 40, median age 40 year females up to 18 fairly recently. And that, that range uh, for premenopausal women is a little high. So there is more cases, for instance, of gestational diabetes if they're uh, childbearing and uh, problems uh, we believe, including uh, autism beyond uh, pregnancy. Okay, so let's stop there. There's a number of reasons why this could occur, but something has caused this. It doesn't appear to be a dramatic, but it is indeed a dramatic increase that is a really strongly suggestive of a radically increased risk of dying prematurely. Yes. So what, is, what, is, what has caused this increase in the last generation or two? Well, what do you, what's your belief that has contributed? Yeah, to it, it, on the research, it's pretty interesting. We um, and the reason I, for my own health, I had a low ferritin a year ago, and I tested with a high GGT, and I've been doing research How on. Your ferritin? How was your ferritin? Thirty-nine. Yeah, that's about what mine is. Thirty-seven. Yeah, and but my GGT was up over sixty. Now I was just studying. Fatty acids. Sixty. And, uh, wow, that is really yeah, very dangerous. High, very high, and I had had a bad case of gout at, with that low ferritin, which was unusual to me. I didn't think that would happen. So I spent a year taking good quality krill oil, and uh, that drove that measurement of GGT down. It drove my triglycerides down, and also something that most people don't know about. I really didn't uh, lactose dehydrogenase which is a marker, LDH. LDH. And it be, as I studied this, it became the most commonly used test to just determine when, uh, if you have cancer, when you are, how long you're likely to live if you have terminal cancer. There's over 2,500 abstracts now in papers in PubMed using that measure as an indication of uh, survival for terminal cancer patients. So it's a, not, a, not a happy test to have high. No, no. So I'm glad you were able to reduce it with krill. Uh, krill, I believe, is the best form of omega or, or DHA, EPA, omega-3 supplementation, mm -hmm. animal-based. Animal I think it's not the ideal. The ideal is, is clean seafood, which is my source. I typically have sardines or clean shrimp or on a regular basis, and you can use an omega-3 index to confirm that your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is fine. But So do you believe that omega-3 deficiency is a big factor, or are there other variables like excess iron, glyphosate, EMF exposure? Well, glyphosate, excess iron, all of the, um, all of the substances in the environment, whether you take it as food or it's in the air or that, that utilize your body's waste disposal system basically in some way or another reduce your antioxidants, whether it's vitamin D, cholesterol, vitamin E, vitamin A, um, 
they reduction of those make you more vulnerable to disease, particularly chronic disease. Uh, autoimmune diseases across the board um, are main factor. Uh, gout, we mentioned that uh, we have a paper just submitted now on gout, and uh, it's actually it's been approved. It'll be in press pretty pretty shortly. Um, but I studied this about a year and a half ago. That's what got me figured out right away when I got the high GGT level. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, all of the rheumatoid diseases pretty much are all relative, relatively high ferritin, but high GGT. Now, having only high one of those two is not so bad, but you don't want to have high either one. I thought I was safe with a low of uh, 39 in serum ferritin and they generally they correlate so I was really surprised but my uh, cellular health was obviously poor and uh, I fixed that up a bit and still working on it. Now one of the things you may want to look at uh, especially if you believe there's an autoimmune component would be looking at plant lectins and doc I've interviewed Dr. Stephen Gundry recently and he wrote the book The Plant Paradox and discusses how these lectins, which are proteins that the plant produces to protect themselves against predators, when we consume them, uh, they tend to stimulate these autoimmune reactions. And, you know, from my perspective, a lectin removal diet, which is pretty easy to implement, basically removing legumes and seeds for the most part, uh, and, and optimizing your vitamin D levels, you know, are two profoundly simple and radically effective measures to abort or reverse uh, most autoimmune diseases. That's uh, what I, I've learned more recently on that. Um, it's a book by Susan Holman, I think her name is. Susan Allport, have you? I have not heard of her. Yeah, The Queen of Fats, the book is. It's fairly, it's several years old, but she connected with a um, investigator, MD scientist by the name of Ralph Holman, I think. And going back to his older literature, I mean, she learned a lot from him. And uh, in my case, I've done the same with uh, a scientist of ours, uh, Gene Weinberg, who had done all of the old science on iron metabolism. And these papers are still cited in today's uh, world very frequently. Um, but this particular investigator, Ralph Holman, has uh, quite a, he shows at that time elevated serum ferritin, elevated GGT as a common factor in almost all autoimmune uh, diseases. And I've since shown that it is. It's, it's a sleeper. It's, they're not elevated yeah. to the roof, but they're elevated. Yeah, I, I'm suspicious that the, the diminished or less than optimal vitamin D levels in the ingestion of plant lectins might actually contribute to those rather yes. than you know, and those would be markers of exposure to those those risk factors. I think they may be uh, a really useful strategy. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about ferritin now too, because my ferritin was running about 150, maybe two years ago, mm -hmm. until I started implementing some self phlebotomy, where I would take out anywhere from two to six ounces of blood every few weeks, and I was able to get it down below 100 pretty easily. But then I actually stopped doing self-phlebotomy, and then I, and then I started a, a uh, detoxification strategy involving near and far infrared sauna and a whole variety of other uh, supplements to facilitate detoxification. 
And my, my ferritin continued to drop over the next, next nine months. And now it's down to 37, I think, that I just had it tested mm -hmm. like a week ago, which it, it was really surprising to me. And I wasn't aware that a detoxification program could actually lower iron. Oh, sure. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, there was a professor, or a doctor, rather, uh, Ficini. You might remember that name. And he did uh, his last paper before he was, I think, retired by the pharmaceutical industry. He was an endocrinologist and basically telling the whole story about iron and iron reduction, the benefits of iron reduction. He did uh, his last published paper was a gout paper in 2003 where he bled. He uh, phlebotomized his patients down to um, what he called near iron deficiency, which would be the level that you're talking about. And I was at, at 39. Now, it had to impact, you know, getting the iron out of the, the extracellular iron that's floating around wherever it is. It's not in your serum. So re reducing that to a non-toxic level requires to bring it down to near iron deficiency because I think that's the last iron out of your body to formulate new red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And until that's gone, you have the uh, risk of injured tissues through free radicals. And um, but that's a, that paper I think is freely available. It's probably on it's on, on my website. I know, but so he documented the detoxifying. Yes, he did, and he documented how how the episodes. These are people with frequent gout episodes, mm -hmm. and they dropped precipitously in terms of numbers per atom, where the people were getting six, seven, eight, and went down to perhaps one or two pretty rapidly. But they had to get down to uh, low ferritin, which would be typically 25 to 50. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, if you go below 20, then I believe there's some risk, at least in most of the conventional literature, that you're going to be uh, having problems with iron deficiency. And we certainly don't want that because you no. do need iron. You need it to yes. generate energy in your mitochondria. <laughs> but the problem is that almost everyone watching it has too much and it actually gets counterproductive. Excess iron will, will actually lower your ability mm -hmm. to produce energy. And it's no longer a standard test since 1997. For whatever reason, they figured that we don't need to test it. Was <laughs> it the GGT or the ferritin? Yeah, it's both, actually, the ferritin. GGT is, um, you can get your doctor typically to order that for you. But I, there are stringent reimbursement rules that um, some won't do it because they've been rejected in the past, particularly an iron panel. If you go in and ask your doctor for an iron panel, he's got to put down why you have it. And suspicion of iron overload or iron, suspicion of iron def deficiency is fine if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to get that diagnosis from the doctor to get you reimbursed for an iron panel. Unless you had a bleeding ulcer or colitis. Yeah, right, yeah. You know. Right. So now you were very excited about this GGT test for other reasons too, because you've uncovered some research in Africa. And just yesterday, a few studies on that and uh, wanted you to go into that a little deeper to well, expand actually, on your, your excitement about these findings. The the excitement actually went back before then because back in the 90s when uh, GGT was tested broadly in uh, the U.S. in Inhanes 3, 1988 to 1994, 
the measurements of African Americans were quite a bit higher than than white Americans and Hispanic Americans in terms of both serum ferritin and GGT. Back then, those measurements were compared to uh, measurements in uh, Zimbabwe, people who were not exposed to spraying for mosquitoes, uh, African blacks. They were roughly half, and they had been obviously on a native diet. They their measurements in gamma-glutamyl transferase and serum ferritin, even if they had a virus like a hepatitis B or, or, v, or C, uh, were half what the American blacks were, which indicating that they were not in, getting the chronic disease yet. But I found out through ver several papers that were um, recently submitted in South Africa that those measurements now are very high. They're, they're catching up and probably surpassing the American blacks' measurements, and they're suffering the chronic diseases. The um, stiffening of the arteries reported, uh, we can post, I, I can provide you with the links to uh, those abstracts. I can't send the full papers because they're, they're uh, I can send them to you, I sent them to you already, but they, they're under, um, uh, the abstracts will be available, and new ones from China will be available. The Chinese have not been helpful, and they supply a lot of extra extra iron with their uh, foods. So various areas of China, their ferritins are typically up around 300 among the men, and the women are overloaded as well. And most recently, they've been testing uh, GGT there in a uh, study just recently published in in uh, Western China, they proved that the addition of serum ferritin to GGT, GGT indicated a higher risk among the midpoint of GGT for chronic kidney disease. But when they added top range of ferritin, serum ferritin, that increased the risk for, of chronic kidney disease by a factor of four to five. So, uh, Above the mid-level of gamma-glutamyl transferase in that population, risk for chronic kidney degrees increased by 20 to 30 percent. But if you added serum ferritin and you happen to be in the top tier of serum ferritin, it went up to uh, another five-fold that. So you're roughly two to one, 2.5 to one of coming down with uh, chronic kidney disease. Yeah, so, but the, I would think that an increase uh, body level or load of iron would also increase your risk of cancer and heart disease. To oh, definitely. Yeah, heart disease. They determined that diabetes is diabetes is probably the main or the almost the easy one if you want to put it that way. Yeah. The population of diabetics in the world today, particularly in these countries that um, uh, don't achieve getting fat. Now you don't want to think getting fat is a positive thing, but it's protective, although you have a lot of risk factors and just that happening. If you have the biochemical risks, like is, exists in Southern Africa, where people just aren't getting fat with these biochemicals as they are in the West, that actually proves to be uh, a, a very significant risk factor, saying too thin. Um, you know, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the other guests I've interviewed, and I'm not recalling specifically who at this time, but he let he let me know, and I didn't know this prior, is that 
man is the only primate that has the ability to store body fat, <laughs> which gave us a, <laughs> a rel relatively novel uh, competitive advantage uh, to exist in, in, the, in the culture. Uh, and because the chimps or gorillas, I mean, they have like, they have like two, three, 4% body fat. That's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you will not see a fat, fat monkey. <laughs> they, they cannot store fat. So this metabolic flexibility to store fat and burn it when you need it and then yes. burn carbohydrates, you need to do both people. Some people think that doing ketosis all the time is healthy and it's not but you need to be able to burn ketones to create them and burn them as fuel. And most people can't because they're taking too many carbohydrates and they're not fasting or going for periods of time without food. And, and then to, to top that off, they're being exposed to these high levels of iron, supplemental iron, uh, and they're not, they, they're not removing it through optimal detoxes or exposed to these other toxins. So it sounds like it's a combination of things. You know, we eat too much meat for the most part, yes. uh, which is a, a, a pretty large source of iron. Uh, we have supplements or our food is supplemented with iron and we're, we're being exposed to toxins that we're not detoxing properly. So th would you say it's fair to that this is the primary reason or are there other contributing factors that you'd like to add? Well, I, I you know, we have iron in our bodies already. Uh, most of it, most of the iron is in the red blood cells. We have two or three grams in our red blood cells and in our myoglobin in the muscles. If we don't have good lipid linings, good fat linings of our cells and our subcells, the uh, opportunity for that iron to come out one way or the other because of poor lipids well that's where most of the toxic iron comes from and it doesn't take a lot it's not uh, so much you eat too much iron one day and you get sick that's not the case it's normally uh, the cells fail and the iron comes from both the red blood cells you, you or can die acutely cells. from it there are a number oh, yes. of children who take iron supplements chewables mm -hmm. particularly and go to the emergency room it's a common cause where they but most of them are safe because they can essentially now they have them in the plastic in the packages they can't get yeah, they, used to, they I, have I a form out of the bottle but this oh yeah a lot of case. kids used to die from iron acute iron yeah. so but that's not the typical process no. more of a chronic chronic issue and it's and it's toxic at relatively low, low amounts and most people don't know either i mean it's important thing to to notice certain of the um pain medications particularly if given it's hard to dose like liquid mm -hmm pain medication, Tylenol in a bottle. If you have a screaming kid at 3 o'clock in the morning, how do you tell the right dose? And if you want to make them quiet, you can overdose them, and that very quickly depletes their antioxidants. It's just the natural function of that particular um, drug, yes, and other, other pain drugs. Yeah, for Tylenol or acetaminophen, uh, yeah. specifically it, it decreases glutathione, and one of the yes, very remedy, remedies for... Uh, acetaminophen overdose or, or suicide with acetaminophen is to actually give them intravenous N-acetylcysteine, which is a rapid yes. precursor for glutathione, which reverses the toxicity pretty rapidly. That's the standard uh, cure or rever reversing of that condition. And it's uh, um, <clears throat> recently I've been in touch with the um, uh, the Mercury Project, and uh, they were in a bit of a quandary because they were being told by the CDC and others that 
the uh, respect to autism, autism rates increased in the 1990s in California and in Denmark. And uh, even though Timerosol, the mercury additive to vaccines, was stopped in those two locations. But there's an answer for that involving iron and GGT in the U.S. Between 1980 and 1990, GGT doubled for young women. That increased the exposure, particularly in California. And in Denmark, it was the uh, very similar thing. Basically, in the Western world, GGT doubled in that roughly 10-year period. Mm -hmm. So the uh, oxidate, oxidants doubled relative to stress levels, and they just um, made it very difficult to maintain health. That's when people, very, during the 1980s, people generally often got fat in the U.S. That was probably the fattest decade we had. Diabetes increased, but it wasn't due to the fat. It was due to the toxicants. Most of that being uh, increased serum ferritin, increased GGT was doubled in that decade. Um, and a similar thing happened in Denmark because the, they had been pointing to the increase after 1990 when Timerosol was stopped in Denmark uh, of autism. But the, the factors were in place during the 1980s when in Denmark they stopped supplementing iron but yet those people who were non-blood donors had a significant increase in serum ferritin in that decade, uh, which was strange. However, the people who were blood donors had a decrease in serum ferritin, which one would expect with the stoppage of iron supplementation. So we, we gave that information to um, RFK Jr.'s group, and we'll follow up with them if they need more. But the, the articles uh, will... Show well, that. Why, why don't you review some of this published epidemiological studies mm -hmm. uh, documenting the pretty radical reduction in chronic diseases for those who are regularly donating their blood two or three times a year? I, I thought yes. it was like reductions of up to 50% of heart disease and cancer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's the case. Now, remember, there was a reduction of sudden death, heart disease, uh, stroke, et cetera, over the last 30, 40 years. That's, in my opinion, this is just a, a, an opinion that I've got looking at the literature over the last 10, 15 years, that's probably more through a weight gain and the distribution of the toxicants out to the uh, fat cells. The drugs themselves often, and one of the reasons that it's difficult to get the doctors to order GGT tests, they, they're discouraged because they know some of the prescription drugs themselves increase the, that level, although the overall effect may be protective. It's not a happy situation to see a, a measure of disease increase just by taking a drug. So um, so there's resistance in that area of, of getting tested. But it's a pretty simple test. It would be recommended. But blood donation uh, basically keeps one healthy. Yes. Well, you know, and I, I would have agreed with that wholeheartedly in our last interview, and I still think it's a useful strategy, but now I become anecdotally, empirically convinced of the power of, of effective detoxification to, to optimize the levels, actually lower than I was ever able to do with, with therapeutic phlebotomies. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's a combination that you need. Obviously, paying attention to the ingestion of iron. I don't think it's wise to eat a lot of meat. 
I personally only eat maybe two to four ounces of meat a week, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I think much more than that. I think you're just asking for trouble because uh, you don't need a lot of protein. <laughs> and there's a lot yeah. of ways that you can yeah. get adequate protein, and most of us overeat it, that's for sure. Yeah, when, one of the things that uh, Stephanie Seneff and I are taking another look at, I've been studying the um, malnutrition for several years now, mainly Quashira core, which is the typical malnutrition disease, or and marasmus in uh, developing countries. And there you have a situation where the individual children, particularly in Quashira core, cannot synthesize the proteins yeah, necessary. Quashiorcor is protein calorie malnutrition. I'm not sure how. Well, that, that, that's the name they applied to it some 50 years ago. Right. But it's important that it keeps the distinction with the health workers haven't done and sometimes leads to uh, improper treatment, giving iron too early mm-hmm. and a recovering child with Quashiorcor or an adult for that matter. The measure that skyrockets early on in that particular case happens to be GGT, high amounts of free iron that uh, because they only because they don't have the um, the proteins to safely embody that iron into uh, either uh, transferrin, which is the uh, protein in the bloodstream that protects iron or protects the body from the iron in the bloodstream and ceruleoplasmin, which is necessary to, it's for copper, but basically to get iron safely into the brain, it needs to be complex with ceruleoplasmin. Those can't be synthesized in a malnourished person. Mm-hmm. So iron to a malnourished person is toxic. highly toxic. Yeah. So you mentioned transferrin. And- yeah. I'm wondering if you would agree or think it's even necessary to include that in a screening to do a percent transfer and saturation level along with the ferritin to get a better idea. And, and if so, what that number should be like under 25%? Well, 25 to 35 is normally considered uh, good. Overall, epidemiologically, it's come down since 1980, at 1980, based on NHANES 1, which was done in the early part of the 1970s in the U.S., that was one of the high markers of um, early death, having a transfer and saturation percentage over 55 mm-hmm. indicated the probability of a 60% premature death. That has been wiped out because right now in the, uh, in the U.S., there used to be at that stage... 1970s, there were 2.6% of the population had transfer and saturation percentages that high. Now it's down to half of that, and that, that's only down because of the relative increase in obesity and more places to uh, hide the iron and tuck it away. So you, you don't think it's that great a, a test to run or a marker for toxicity secondary to iron? I would if you're if you happen to be thin. If you have a BMI under twenty two or twenty three, I would I would get that test. It's okay. a pretty standard panel. Like you know, if you get an iron panel, if your prescription, yeah, it'll be there. It'll be there. Yeah, and the ideal should be between twenty five and thirty five. Or is it yeah, I'd say twenty five and thirty five, and you get up above forty because it depends on the uh, pH of your blood. Your your transferrin can lose iron down to 31 if you have a, 
uh, acidic blood, and people generally don't know what their blood acid level is. So anything 25 to 35 is safe. If you if you're unusually thin, though, I would get that test done because there you can have a high, unsuspectingly high um, transfer transfer saturation, particularly if you if you're malnourished. I mean, unfortunately, some people become like anorexic nervosia. Uh, has severe effects on the brain when you're that thin, you know, BMIs of 14, 15. And well, it, or the standard American diet, pizza and ice cream, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing, nothing if you really enjoy <laughs> to eat food, but if you have any concept of living a long, healthy life free from disease, there's plenty wrong with it. So, uh, uh, any other comments you'd like to make, or uh, no? I just uh, we keep on working away. I've got my I'm older now. My own health I got to worry about a bit. But yeah. uh, well, you know what? I want to add something to this. I think I may have emailed you earlier, but hopefully, and I've definitely emailed Dr. Senep about this. But I want to put a a bug in your ear because I think it's it's one of the most powerful innovations that I've ever encountered with respect to therapeutic supplementation. And that it and it's not really a supplement, it's it's a gas, molecular hydrogen, mm -hmm. which is the most novel selective antioxidant known to man with virtually no toxicity. It's the smallest molecule in the universe, permeates essentially every membrane in your body and it's a neutral there's no it's not an ion so it's, you know it's not impeded in its ability to transfer into all the compartments and it will instantly neutralize the primary pathology from excess iron levels which is hydroxyl free radicals because molecular hydrogen combines with hydroxyl free radical and forms this really pernicious deadly product called water <laughs> right yeah that's you know so that that's the problem well, you, know, you can't drown well, yeah, intracellular water, so I don't think it's going to be an issue. <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking very small amounts, you know, you know a few millimoles or so of this stuff. But uh, it usually is taken as a tablet uh, and pulsed in a cyclical fashion. But I am so excited about this approach. I think it's one of the most profoundly effective strategies to improve mitochondrial function, to decrease toxicity in the Fenton reaction from excess iron, and to... Uh, basically scavenge these unnecessary free radicals. The problem with most antioxidants, you know, there's this antioxidant theory of aging or the right. oxidant mm -hmm. theory of aging, which has pretty much been dismissed now. Any serious scientist doesn't doesn't accept that because you do need free radicals. They yeah, are, yes, you yeah. have to have a certain base level of free radicals. They're important signaling molecules. And if you indiscriminately suppress them with these broad spectrum shotgun antioxidants, you are going to mess with those those baselines. But the studies that are done with molecular hydrogen is very clear. It doesn't, it doesn't impair baseline free, normal natural free radicals you need for biological signaling. It's so that's what, yeah, it's something you got to look at because I think especially for you, if you can, because you're connected in that and to that community, for the people who have high levels and they're not able to get it down through detox and therapeutic phlebotomy quick enough, they really need to be a molecular hydrogen. I think that that could radically improve their health. I mean, it's radically. A simple question: How do you get it? <laughs> well, usually as tablets, we're probably going to be okay. having some in the future. But there's a number of companies out there now that produce them. The technology is emerging. The Japanese have been studying this for about three or four decades. They are the leaders in the world. Most of the published literature is from Japan, 
Uh, and uh, it was an artifact of the alkaline water systems, but the alkaline water doesn't work for squat. The only reason why you mm -hmm. get benefit from it is because it produces molecular hydrogen. But drinking it is not the best way because you, drinking it all day long is not a good strategy. You really want to pulse it in high doses to get the benefits because it's also, it's a hormetic. You know what it does? It's just pretty, it's, it's a really profoundly stimulant of the NRF2 pathways. And what does NRF2 do when it's activated? It makes glutathione, superoxide dismutase, catalase, you know, all the, all the beneficial stuff, right? antioxidants that your body wants to fight this oxidative damage, but it makes it in levels that you need, not in, in excessive amounts that can cause problems. Well, the depletion of antioxidants through, through is a serious problem. Yes, absolutely. But, but to try to play God and think that you know better and to take these <laughs> antioxidants, you know, superficially it appears healthy, but I think it's counterproductive in the vast majority of people who are doing it. Well, you know, the free radical theory of aging was uh, proposed in 1954. Yeah, was it Dennis Harmon, was it? Uh, Harmon, yeah. He was a gerontologist. He died about three or four years ago at age 98 himself, and he was... Pretty good. He was applauded by the pharmaceutical company because they jumped right on that. They, they liked oh, that. Yeah. Well, it's been modified. Now, instead of the free radical theory of aging, it's the mitochondrial right. theory and of that's, aging. Which, which really, which you know, refines it quite a bit, and it's it's not it's the excessive free radicals that are a problem, not just free yeah. radicals, excessive yeah. free radicals, and and I'm convinced that EMF exposure, which is my new uh, passion, is to help people understand that is is another one. It actually, this is the same darn pathology. It produces ultimately by opening these voltage gated calcium channels, uh, allowing calcium to leak into the cells. Mm -hmm. combining or causing the release of nitric oxide, which then combines with superoxide to create perioxynitrate, creating hydroxyl free radicals, same thing that causes damage and excess iron. So the molecular hydrogen is a winner there too, although you want to, just like the iron exposure, you want to limit your iron, uh, aggressively apply, implement strategies to remove it. Uh, so similarly with EMF, you want you just don't want to take hydrogen and say that's the end of the game. You want to limit your exposure to it because it's a toxic poison that most of us have no understanding of the, of the damage it's doing to us. It's very, it's actually I'm convinced now after reviewing these studies, it's worse than ionizing radiation. I mean, unless you're going to get massive doses that'll kill you in a few days, like you could with the nuclear fallout. <laughs> but uh, you know, the typical X-rays that we're exposed to, I think it's EMF is far more dangerous. We're currently looking at hypervitaminosis A, uh, mm -hmm. vitamin A toxicity, which strangely enough, I'm not sure of the mechanism behind this. Synthetic. 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 Oh, yeah, it's, it's only synthetic. You can't, yeah. you can't eat too many carrots, I don't think. And, and, well, that's uh, not vitamin A, it's carotene. You could get vitamin A. Vitamin A is present in animal products, mm -hmm. uh, typically like butter or, you know, but, but, it's, but all the plant sources are beta carotene. But basically, there's a... Um, I don't recall the number now, but it's uh, of the uh, preformed vitamin A it can be toxic in certain amounts and uh, high soda drinkers, whether it's uh, high fructose corn syrup or um, artificial flavoring and soda, it can increase both that and uh, GGT in the serum. So it's... Uh, a risk factor that is interesting. I won't go into the detail, but 10 years ago, there's some interesting studies that reported on both GGT and then some of the uh, 
said this it's the soda companies that are doing it and largely they were right i before my first transplant i switched to uh, from alcohol to uh sweetened uh, non-fat soda and that did a real not <laughs> job no, no. on me we don't want to definitely don't want to do those no all right so we've given our audience quite a few pearls that they can take home and just sort of summarizing it uh if you were interested in being healthy and staying healthy, preventing chronic disease, and I would strongly, strongly encourage you to get a ferritin and a GGT level regularly until you're able to implement lifestyle changes to get them in the optimum range. GGTP should be uh, in the teens to even even below 10 if you're a woman. Yeah. And for a ferritin, I would say 40 to 60, but under 40 is fine. 20 to 40. I don't know. What's your what's your best level for, well, for a male? Um, I'd say under 50. Although we we in Iron Disorders Institute we say between 100, even up to 150. But yeah, it's a vitamin D level below 20. <laughs> there there are two two camps. Well, you know the lab levels now are upwards of 400. And uh, some countries, unfortunately, we don't agree with this at all. Uh, fortunately, in the U.S., we have some flexibility. But some countries won't permit you to get a free iron reduction phlebotomy therapeutically if your ferritin is five or 600 or 700. They want you to wait till you get to 1,000 if you're that's, still that's alive. Criminal. It, needs, yeah. it needs to be. So ideally, below 50, well, what do you think the range is? I would say. 30 uh, to 50? 30 to 60 probably 30 60. unless okay, you have yeah i wouldn't worry too much about it if you get the other test if you get for GGT. ggt yeah and your ggt is low your ferritin can float up and you're, you're going to be safe okay good so that's this it powerful, powerful it's, it's interactive it's, yeah and, and it, again this is these are markers folks markers mm -hmm. for iron toxicity and even though it may not seem like it's a problem it is it's a major contributor to heart disease cancer diabetes, obesity. So it's, and it's so, so easy to turn around. Liver diseases, liver fatty diseases, liver. Fatty liver, not alcoholic. High, high triglycerides, yeah. You name it, it's a problem. So. Uh, infections, all sorts of infections. You don't want to go to the hospital with high iron. Yeah. Because and you it, might not come out. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. And, and actually, that is one of the complications or con relative contraindications for taking vitamin C if you take vitamin C with any food that contains iron, it will actually increase the absorption, which is not a good thing for most of us. No. All right. So thank you for joining us. And hopefully this has been helpful for everyone. Thank you, doctor.